And we are back here on Marvel vs. Marvel as uh, we examine the very first X-Men cartoon, The Failed Pilot, for a series <laughs> that never happened. The very first time that they tried to do an X-Men project, uh, Pride of the X-Men, as Kitty Pride joins the X-Men for the first time. It died a death. We know that. We know what really happened. 1994, we got the real deal. But we're before that. Before. We are pre. That's what we're doing here on Marvel vs. Marvel this week. Um, and we've laid a, uh, a delectable table um, for you to. Uh, a delect table. A delectable, a delectable delect table in part one <laughs> as we went behind the scenes on how the show got made. Where did the money come from? Um, the, the 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 basis of it, how influ- how popular it was, the, uh, the the toys, the video games that did and didn't come out of it. We uh, looked at the world of 1989 and indeed, more importantly, Marvel Comics in 1989, one of the most important years in the history of that company we also looked at the creation of kitty pride we listened to some people very few of them who had experienced this uh this episode firsthand and uh and then we also paid homage to the people that allow us to do three episodes on infinity war um and then a huge dive into something like this and those people are peter j brandon schmigilski randall schmidt bastard beer sam bindi Soupy, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, Zubair Q, and David Fan. We give our utmost thanks to those, the top contributors on our Patreon, the World Class Wrecking Crew. And with all business now accounted for and handled, Will Preston can execute the deep dive. Deep <laughs> I thought I was going to do it in a robot voice. Execute the deep dive. Can, no, you can do a robot voice. Do a robot voice. Execute deep dive. No. Yeah, I don't know why you do it, but you can. It's no, your show. No, I prefer it's to pay less. It's 50% your show. I prefer it when, when, it, when we talk about old VHSs. Okay. Because, you know, I have the nostalgia, and that's all I have yeah. these days, Rob. That's all I have. In the dead of night, a military convoy transports the dangerous mutant Magneto imprisoned in an anti-magnetic field. Oh, yeah, one of them. Yeah, one of those. What, <laughs> they, you can get them at Woolworths, mate. Yeah. While the scientist studying Magneto is amazed by the mutant's power, the military officer observing scoffs that mutants don't deserve to live. That is hard line. That is, he says that. He is at work. He's at, he's <laughs> he at, said he, that out loud. <laughs> God. You talk about racism in the workplace in the late we, 80s in the military? Oh, we've no. all worked with racists and sexists, but yeah. very rarely have they turned to you in the workplace and said, I don't think those people from Papua New Guinea deserve to live. Yeah. It's just not happened that often. Yeah. Uh, it's, Magneto responds that when he is through, humans won't have a place to live on Earth. Angering the officer. The next minute, the truck jolts wildly. The entire convoy is sinking into the ground thanks to the work of Emma Frost, the White Queen. As the soldiers flee the scene in terror, the White Queen flees Magneto from his bonds, allowing him to escape. Now, Rob, let's talk about that intro. (laughs) Oh, it's been... Say what you want about... Say what you want about it, but it has been like 
stuck in my head yes, for a whole week. Expert, expert, this is a day. Expert, coming your way. I just on a loop, and then and it found and it found a pillage pad and plunder and it found a team that strikes like thunder. It's been yeah. They are yelling at you who the X Men are. They are shouting about the X Men in your face, telling you who they are. It's how you do it. It's the same guy that did Defenders yeah. of the Earth, Defenders. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, Master of Magic, Spells and Delusions. That's that character taken care of. I don't know um, why, but I just I just suddenly heard Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny doing his songs on the keyboard. Master, you know, there's a spider. I heard oh, okay. little, it just yeah. made me think of that. But, like, but TV shows used to do that. They used to, especially yeah. the cartoons, they would, the intro has got to nail like what the show is and 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 as quickly as possible sum up what's going on if um if, if you haven't seen it uh an internet cartoonist did one of those intro cartoon intros uh but to the watchman watchman yeah, you yeah, it's yeah. i knew you're gonna bring the watchman up yeah oh, sorry it's very I, I, you, very good it's a very, very good. good pastiche homage the watchman is a saturday morning cartoon yeah. Oh, so good. Anyway, the other thing, <laughs> Stanley's so intro. How do, but how how does it stack up to the to the animated the nineties animated um, uh, song and intro? Sorry, uh, what you are you comparing? Are you comparing? I think that's what we're here to do, aren't we? We're... Why did this not work, and why did the other one? Oh, work? right. I thought you meant like which one's better. Fight. Well, yeah. No. Which one's better? Well, that's what we're doing. Well, I think what the uh, the nineties X Men animated cartoon worked better because it kept it simple with a very good hook riff mm. and it didn't yell at you who the characters were it showed you who the characters were i think I, sho- I don't think there's anything wrong with like with a title sequence that i mean it's simpler it's sim- it's, i think it's, it's simpler it's, more effective no no i'm saying it's simpler to have a bit that says this is cyclops this is the act, you know, that's a simp that is simpler, uh, it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Uh, I prefer, I prefer simplicity in terms of theme tunes. Like, I, 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 I prefer to just go, okay, I know what I'm watching, I know the vibe. No, great. We're, we're lost, we're lost, we're lost in this. I am saying it's warm, the Rob, 1980, it's warm. The 1989 cartoon is doing something simpler, it's doing something okay. very basic, it has lyrics that say. Hey, it's the X Men. They're heroes, and these are the bad guys. Hey, hey, and we're the, 90s, the X Men. <laughs> and the nineties one that didn't work, that, that does work, didn't have that. It had something a little bit more. Didn't have need to feel the need to have those lyrics because it's not a sort of a syndicated show. Okay, it's I, I, a. I, yeah. But I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I find this the same with all jingles. They stick in your head. Mm. When you used to, you probably don't listen to the radio. You listen to the radio, special local radio. No, you I've, get all I've, the jingles stuck in your head. Yeah, it's awful. And I missed them off TV. I missed the old jingles off a TV advert. Yeah, I, they, they I they're stuck makes, in my head. I don't know if it makes them good. It makes them memorable. And there's something uh, about that. I've been singing this theme song all week, Will. There X-Men. must be something in that. This is the day. I'm going to say I like it. And in fact, I'm going to say I prefer it to how, the 94 how X-Men. dare you? How dare you? The 94 X-Men is good, but I, I, don't, I don't know. After the amount First, of fighting they did to get that theme tune, and you're there going, no, I prefer this one on that forgotten thing. Yeah. It's be- I think it's better. I think it's a better. Yeah, I. I, I Podcast really- is over, the- people. Podcast is finished. We're packing up. I can't take this anymore. 
And because I enjoy the animation more, yeah, the I really good. like the intro. Yeah, but the one thing they 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 do in this they don't do in the <laughs> animated series that came later was Stan Lee doing an intro. Mm. That, do you remember when we looked at it? We had this thing where he tried to do it. Do you remember? Yeah, because he, he tried to, you know, push in a Margaret Loach and say, "Well, like we should do an intro, right? Like we used to do for the Amazing Friends and the yeah. Spider Man and da, 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 da. And they had to really push back on him to get that not to happen. I know, but with this one, it genuinely felt like no one said no to him. Like he came up, he came up with the. Uh, he came up with like uh, like like oh an idea and people just went sure I guess rather than going maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't do this well because they weren't trying to do anything different were they that Stanley had done the, like intros and stuff for mm. a lot of the cartoons for uh, years and years he'd been the spokesman for Marvel for years and years I mean why not do it if 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 the Spider Man one with him doing it works why wouldn't you know what's wrong with this yeah I get it I get it it's but it but it, I don't remember it being jarring as a kid in fact i liked it as a kid because i knew who stanley was and this was kind of interesting but i was a kid i i think i think it's jarring for me because i'm there going like this is stanley talking and it's like after all the coverage we've done about how much he loves to be you know in there going hey yes yeah so it, it, it i i know i noticed it so also uh magneto here uh played by earl bowen who also voiced other Marvel characters in the late Spider-Man, late Spider-Man cartoon that played the Red Skull and the Beyonder. But, and I've said this on the episode we covered, more famously, he played Dr. Silverman in the Terminator films. And have you, did you, who is Dr. Silverman then? Who's in the... he, he, he's Sarah Connor's psychiatrist. Oh, Sarah right. Connor's psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, he's weird because I only know him from like that film and maybe those films and maybe a couple of other things and then he's like oh he's one of those people who's gone to do a lot of voiceover work including the ghost pirate LeChuck in the Monkey Island games and I'm like what? I've um, been re-watching S.H.I.E.L.D. the S.H.I.E.L.D. series um, at the series which has life model decoys running amok two mm. of the characters um one of the two of the characters they watch, they, they're they're angry that anyone would build a robot because they've watched all the ro- movies where robots rise up and kill people, <laughs> and they just those are kind of the pop culture voice in the episode. They keep bringing up like, why the hell would you have you not even seen a movie? Yeah. And at one stage, one of them says, "When we get the guy behind this, the doctor that's inadvertently done this, we're going to make him watch all the Terminator movies in a row." And the other one says, even salvation. (laughs) He did this to himself. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Even though, man, it probably came up before Genesis, but man, Genesis is even worse. It's so bad. Anyway, we're we're not here to slag off Terminator. We're here to talk about X-Men. So in the movies, we're used to seeing uh, Mystique coming to Magneto's rescue. She's like she's like the number two guy in in, in, in the films. Is the White Queen taking that place? Is, is, is she one of his allies in the comics, usually? No. She's never really been Magneto's lackey. Um, Emma Frost is... is she's, just, she's almost like a, a completely separate other path and other kind of realm. Um, mm. I, I, you know, she no, she so she's the 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 white queen of the Hellfire Club, yes. this prestigious, exclusive club of very powerful people, um, and she's also incredibly rich. She's held many positions. She's the the, the, the chairman, the CEO of Frost International, a very rich, powerful company, um, which helps fund the 
the uh, the Lord's Cardinal, I guess. Because um, the Hellfire Club has got loads of people who are not evil mutants. <laughs> They're just, <laughs> like, uh, bigots, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> They're just your standard racists. Well, it's an exclusive club, yeah. you know? Um, I Somebody I know, who's a nice person, I really liked him. They asked me, they're part of the Masons. Oh, I've got a friend who's in the Masons too. They asked me if I wanted to join the Freemasons. And yeah. it just came out of nowhere, we were having a drink. And suddenly it was a half-hour discussion about all the positive things they do. And how they'd sponsor me, mm. and they'd bring me in, and wouldn't it be wonderful for you? And I cut to the very end of this, I said, what do you think? And I said... Do they still not allow women to join? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah. And I said, oh, jog on yeah, then. Like, nah. I spent my whole life trying to go places where there are chicks. Don't we just join the Masons? <laughs> What's wrong with you people? Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, right? I very much like what, the what? times when I go to the pub with just a couple of blokey mates and we have a bit of a blokey time. But by and large, I don't... I, oh, you cannot get me to be a part of anything that doesn't have women in. Women are the best part of of this world we have. Genuinely, we're men. Like, why would you? Uh, so yeah. So it's the exclusive <sighs> club, which probably doesn't let uh, brown people or women in. So I imagine yeah. the Hellfire Club, but they're regular. They're kind of regular masochists and whatever, and they're probably dead kinky because they love a bit of that. You know, uh, BDSM in the Hellfire Club. Wouldn't surprise me. But the Lord's Cardinal are the top ruling people who were all, let's build sentinels and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so she funds a lot of that with yeah. Frost International. Um, and she also runs the Massachusetts Academy. Now, the Massachusetts Academy is a secret school for mutants, which is like a counterpoint to the Xavier School. Okay. Um, and at this point in the nineties, when they've when Clement and Byrne have introduced Emma Frost and uh, and that the Hellfire Club, whenever a new mutant appears and Cerebro goes, "New mutant, get them!" <laughs> and the X Men go, "Let's go and recruit them and get them to join the X Men or whatever." They have to compete with the White Queen in who, in, in recruiting them because it's like we got a better offer. It's all about being selfish. <laughs> you could go and work for this bald jackass who wants you to save people that want to string you up, or I'm in a corset and I live in a mansion. So that's there's all sound, that kind of stuff. That sounds like do I work for the private or the public sector? <laughs> yeah, very much, yeah. Um, and she, in fact, uh, she has a, a bunch of new mutants, uh, eventually young mutants that that she trains up to become a fighting team. They become the Hellions. Mm. Like the young, they're going to be the next generation of Hellfire Club people, the Lord's Cardinal. So they're the counterpoint to like, they're not quite the counterpoint to the X-Men. They're the counterpoint to the new mutants who are a young team of trainee student types. Um, there is, however, a connection between Emma Frost, the White Queen, and Magneto. At one point, Charles Xavier leaves Earth to go and shag a bird alien in space. <laughs> and <laughs> and in his absence, he leaves Magneto in charge of the X-Men and his house and the children. The school are full of children. That's what he thinks he's going to... That's, that's his plan. He's so Magneto. blinded by... Magneto, could you look after the kids? I'm on a promise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a cosmic promise. Um yeah. And Emma Frost is able to get along with Magneto in a much better manner than Xavier because she, 
loathes Charles Xavier. He's like pious yeah. and overbearing, and she he thinks she's evil, and she's like, I'm not evil, and thinking I'm evil is kind of dumb. Mm. So she feels a kinship with 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 Magneto because they've both gone to extremes in order to protect their own kind. She's like, yeah, I know you killed a whole bunch of people, but I mean, who wouldn't? They were humans. They're awful. <laughs> so that's that's a relationship that works. And so she's she helps Magneto and, and, and the New Mutants on a couple of adventures and stuff. Um, and uh, eventually. She sponsors him to become a member of the Hellfire Club. Uh, and he gets elected White King alongside her White Queen. So Ooh. there is a connection, but like never okay. lackey. And she doesn't join the Brotherhood of, of Mutants and stuff that, like that. That's an interest, that's interesting. It comes out that way, though. White King? Jeez. Well, eventually he uh, um, dethrones the other guy and halts both king positions and becomes white and black and becomes the Grey King. Sounds like Gandalf. Outside the X-Mansion, Kitty Pride is dumped by a rude cabbie. Rereading her invitation letter from Charles Xavier, it is revealed that Kitty has the power to phase. Entering the empty mansion, Kitty calls out and is greeted by a psychic manifestation of Charles, who explains that he's the leader of the X-Men. No need for this. No need for this. Has he not got ring? It's Has got, he not got a ring doorbell? Could he not just... It's 1989. I know, but a it's psychic... 1989, He's in Rob. the house. What's he using his psychic powers for? I can't be bothered to go to the front door. He's he's in a wheelchair, Rob. He's well, in he a doesn't wheel- need to be, as we'll see later on. <laughs> Fully moves his legs. <laughs> anyway. As well as information on her special power using Cerebro, a powerful computer that can track all mutants across the globe. Kitty, hearing this confirmation that she is indeed a mutant, gets emotional about being considered a freak, but Charles comforts her and tells her that she is not a freak. So this really does feel like an 80s cartoon from the voice acting, the music, the hair. It's like, it has that similar vibe to those other cartoons like we're talking about, like Transformers, etc. Kitty Pride's voice acting is grating. Yeah. It's not pleasant to Awful. hear. It's that yeah. kind of... I don't know what it is. It, I think it's constantly whiny, submissive, like hor- horrible stereotype of a woman. I think there's a, um, I think I don't know who did it, but it feels like what an adult has had to do to try and sound like a child is just doesn't work. Yeah, and uh, it's just ended up being horrible to listen to. Yeah, I, I, I think I looked into it and should, like it's someone who. Who's done a lot of? Uh, oh yeah, they've 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 played uh, loads of cartoon roles, so you kind of know where they're from, but can't really pin it down. Hmm. But yeah, it's that it's that kind of almost like she doesn't look like a child, but they're going to make her sound even younger than she needs to be. It's like you know, she like, does look like a child. Well, she I mean, she's like got teenage, crazy eighties perm, but early. Well, my mum had that. Um, hmm. Like. It, you know, you know, she's like obviously a teenage, but they're making it sound like you know, you know, like a yeah, that's much right, younger much child, younger. Yeah, sense. you're yeah. right. So, is this how Kitty Pryde joins the X Men in the comics? She gets an, uh, an invitation, she meets Charles, and goes, "Oh, I hate myself," and you know, no, she joins via mind wiping. <laughs> so <laughs> even worse. Oh, wonderful, so, wonderful. Uh, Thirteen years old, Kitty Pryde starts to have these terrible headaches, and it. Her, her phasing powers emerge, and it's all very confusing. She shows up on Cerebra. She's approached by both Xavier and Emma Frost, the White Queen, um, who both are trying to recruit her. 
for their uh, respected schools and causes. Um, Have you seen our she... prospectus? <laughs> <laughs> Ours involves fighting sentinels, don't you know? Um, so she gets along better with X, with with Xavier and 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 the X Men, especially Aurora. She loves Aurora. Oh, she, she like she's like this woman is tall and strong and gorgeous and and smart and like she's amazing but also she's she describes emma frost as having that other one looked at me as if i was something good to eat like she looked like a predator she was just a a date looked like a dangerous person um then they get uh attacked by um hellfire club like armored mercenary type people mm. um and a whole adventure takes place um and kitty pride gets kind of uh wrapped up with with she gets kidnapped along with them and she manages to um get free and contact the cyclops and the other x-men um and they come and rescue them so she's kind of involved in a little adventure there um wow. and at the end of that adventure that goes on for a couple of issues uh, it's like, and we have saved the day. And Kitty knows that you probably shouldn't join the people who send armed mercenaries to kill you. <laughs> and then they go, oh, we took Kitty out of her family house and said to the parents, we're going to go and get a soda with her. And that was like two days ago. No. This no. is bad. Also, the soda shop where they went to like, because basically Aurora was like, hey, why don't you come with me and the other cool like X Men, and we'll like forget forget the bald guy. Come with us, and we'll go to a soda shop and talk about why you should join the not the X Men, the Xavier's. Um, and so they went to the soda shop. That's where the armored mercenaries attacked. The soda shop was blown up. <laughs> the parents have had no information other than they went to get a soda, and the soda shop exploded. <laughs> and it was two days ago, and we haven't heard from them. And so this is not good. Um, Bloody hell. And they're furious. They're like, I can't believe you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, And Phoenix arrives, Jean Grey. She's become Phoenix at the time. And she goes, oh, is this a problem? I'll just wipe their minds. Don't worry about it. Um, and wow. so she just and it's and it's it solves the problem. And Kitty's like, "Hey, that's awesome! My parents aren't mad at me anymore. I'm going to join your school." Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a, they they don't like the the parents don't know it's anything to do with mutants because they use their powers again. But it, it's so that's how she kind of gets the joins the team. But it's one of those subtle nods of you know in the older stories, it was always. Not quite the sixties, but in the seventies, whenever Xavier used his powers to like do, to mind wipe somebody, it was always like, "I only do this in the direst of circumstances." Mm. And now Phoenix is just like, "Hey, I'm the most powerful thing in existence. Gonna wipe your minds because it's slightly inconvenient to give you an explanation." <laughs> we're just we're walking down that road of maybe she shouldn't be this powerful. You basically so. it's the equivalent of using your car to go around the corner to the shop. It's just too much. Or indeed, sending a psychic projection because you can't be bothered to open the door. How dare you? You are so ableist. When it comes to psychics, yes. Yes. Okay. He's more able. Leading Kitty to the danger room, Charles gives Kitty a view of the X-Men in training. In a simulated jungle temple conjured up by the danger room, Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, is shown facing up against the danger room's manifestation, using his ocular beam to attack. Elsewhere in is, the... Da- is what? Ocular beam? What would you call it's it? It's an optic blast. 
<laughs> I will not have this. You've tried this once before. <laughs> Ocular beam. Who do you think you are? Optic. <laughs> it's an optic blast in all media. It's an optic blast. Okay, optic blast. Ocular beam. I don't know why that's worse, but it is. Oh, Equaman, you can't marry a woman without gills. You're from two different worlds. Simpsons comic book guy. You're cool. like a more pleasant version of the comic book guy at times with your I correcting. Uh, elsewhere in the danger room, Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus, dodges crushing stone slabs before transforming into his metallic form. Fighting a group of monster plants is Dazzler, a mutant who can transform sound into powerful bolts of light. A blue mutant with a tail, Nightcrawler, is shown dodging a golem using his instant teleportation powers before the monster is sliced apart by Wolverine and his razor-sharp adamantium claws. A final mutant uses a small cyclone to advantage, who um, is called Storm, who can control the weather. After these brief introductions, Charles tells Kitty that he has the ability to see into people's minds. So with the X-Men cartoon we did get in the end, I'm really glad we didn't do this clunky introduction where it's just one after the other after the other rather than something a bit more organic and natural. It seems a bit like, here they all are, let's just put them in a line. I think, again, it's it's that it's that thing we talked about of, of yeah. one show was taking more risks and presenting more of more kind of putting story first rather than um, introduce characters so they know what they're doing to buy the toys. Yeah, also, uh, I remember discussing with you on here and a few other people how Storm's original outfit was re- was really sexy. I understand. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> you've, I swear you've said, well, you said it was a good costume. You said the original one was great. Yes. Yes. Well, someone else said it was sexy then. There you go. I mean, yep, yeah, you've got great costume. So It's a great, it's a great design. This is the, fir- the first design uh, instead of, because in the... So in the '90s series, she's got the head-to-toe silver suit. Yes, with the cape thing. With the cape, a bit similar. Yeah, which she, she, I guess, br- briefly had in the uh, in the '90s. But it's not the storm I remember. Hmm. Um, the best storm design is when she has lost her mutant powers, uh, cuts all her hair off, has a mohawk. Starts wearing like a sleeveless uh, denim jacket oh, and yes. leather trousers, um, and she is powerless, but still such a badass. She, she's the leader of the X Men with no powers. That's cool. that's that's eighties uh, Storm. She's pretty awesome. I I've se- I've seen that look somewhere, and I love it. Yeah. So obviously, this this ends up being a different roster to to the cartoon we got in the nineties. Why is this a different uh, lineup? Well, in the comic books, the the roster of X Men changes uh, pretty much all the time, mm. and just like the the Avengers comics kind of change their their roster quite regularly. Um, so the the X Men animated series has a very nineties roster. Ah, right, right. That right. couldn't be replicated in nineteen eighty nine. Gambit hadn't even been uh, created when the Pride of the X Men cartoon came out. Oh, okay. Gambit Gambit first appears in nineteen ninety one. Right, 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 right. Jubilee right. wasn't created until like halfway through 1989. So not enough time for her to be produced and drawn and put into it. Um, and she wasn't a part of the X-Men for several years down the line. Gotcha. Characters in 1989, characters like Jean Grey and the Beast weren't in the X-Men. Uh, they were part of another group called X-Factor. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. 
so being a nineteen eighty nine cartoon, this this roster reflects the 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 X Men of the most popular period. Most popular period is not right, Rob, because it would be the early nineties. But the insanely popular X Men in the eighties and that roster. When the X Men comic, uh, which was cancelled at the end of the sixties, when X Men was relaunched in nineteen seventy five, they had this lineup of Cyclops, the only person from the old sixties team. Leading a team of brand new characters. That's when we get Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus. And mm. there's a few others, but they kind of don't stay. Like Banshee doesn't stay. Um, Thunderbird doesn't stay. Sunfire doesn't stay. But the other, like, so Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, they become like the mainstays from the 70s through to the 80s, the Phoenix, Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past and all that. Um, all the big X Men stories feature those, those characters. So, I mean, Cyclops wasn't actually a member of the X-Men teams in 1989 either. He was off leading X-Factor, but it makes sense to include him in any... No adaptation. No, The X-Men on the X-Men really without Cyclops in them, um, it feels like. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like having the Avengers without Cap, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, Dazzler is quite a late addition to the team. She comes around in... Like eighty seven, eighty eight, something like that, and is only there for a brief period of time. But she became very popular with readers, and I think there are these things. Like, what well, we need, we need to make sure it's not just a bunch of dudes and Storm. We need a few more <laughs> women on the team. Um, so yeah, it's a very eighties team as opposed to the very nineties team that we get a few years later. Just thinking about like, oh, just a bunch of dudes and Storm. Someone comes in. Oh my god, so many men. What is this? A stonemasons meeting? It's a meeting. Sorry, call back to that. <laughs> now that Kitty is familiar with the team, Charles calls up the team to meet their newest member. Nightcrawler immediately teleports into the room and comes onto Kitty, scaring her and causing Kitty to phase through the observation deck and into the danger room. She is caught by Colossus and welcomed by the team, apart from Wolverine, who is abruptly apprehensive over a child joining the team. The next second, an alarm sounds, signalling the X-Men to action, with Kitty Pride tailing behind. As the team flies out of the mansion's hidden aircraft hangar, their exit is viewed from afar by Magneto, who sets up the alert as a ruse to allow his henchmen, so a henchman, Juggernaut, to storm the mansion with him. Again, we've mentioned it. Wolverine, Aussie accent, I was not ready. I, I, I knew about it, but I was taken off guard. Here's what I'll say. For yeah. some reason, it doesn't not work. It's not... It... It's not. It's better than him being any other. It's better than being British. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of any. It's better than having any other European accents. Mm. Something about it kind of works. It works, but it's it it is only like that to me because I'm so familiar with the character that his voice uh, from the cartoon is etched into my brain. Do you think so? If you didn't have that, do you think you'd be fine with it? Yeah, I'd be fine with it. I'd be yeah, like, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? I just go, yeah. Oh, he's Australian, and then when I found out later he's Canadian, I'll be like, eh. I think it fits because, like, it's kind of like a rugged, tough yes. guy, a bit of a down and dirty, rugged, tough guy, which is what we're you know when they talk about this period in the nineteen eighties, you're thinking of Crocodile Dundee and Mad Max and things like that. There is nothing more Australian than a man with no sleeves. <laughs> Let's put it that way: a, a hairy man with no sleeves. Uh, also, Nightcrawler uh, uses the term "Fraulein" 
Uh, and I found that funny because it turns out that's a very outdated word. According to my German wife, uh, also, I'm not used to uh, Nightcrawler being flirty. It feels weird. I think I you are completely uh, right. Good. I, but I, I don't think their intention is to make him flirty. I thought it was. But I think that's because they have misread source material. I yeah. don't quite know. I mean, that, um, that does come off here because like, she's a child. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. It's very weird. So with this weird stuff going on between Kitty and Nightcore, you said you've mentioned they misinterpreted source material. Is there anything like this in the comics? Like, are they allu- Have they misread something in, in there? Well, as any Weezer fans will know, there's obviously a strong connection between Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler. Weezer um, fans? Yeah. Oh, hello. Um, kids, if you haven't heard it before, go and listen to the album Blue by Weezer, one of my all-time favorite records. Um, in the garage, um, I've got a Dungeon Master's Guide. I've got a 12-sided die. I've got Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler 2. Um, ah. Uh, yeah, it's a great album about how disaffected youths will stay in their garage with their Kiss posters and their Dungeons and Dragons and their X Men comics. Um, anyway, uh, Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler have one of the most interesting and complex relationships in the X Men, and I think they've picked up on the wrong things here. So when <laughs> when Kitty when she first joins the X Men, yeah. she cannot handle. Nightcrawler's appearance Mm. and this makes sense because she's a child and he literally looks like a demon (laughs) he's a very sweet man but he looks there's you can't get around that he looks like a demon yeah and it isn't portrayed in that she's mean-spirited and and bigoted her thoughts which we've seen in the monologue things reveal it says like one of the early appearances of each time i see nightcrawler i flinch I can't seem to help myself. I want to like him, but he looks so different. He gives me the creeps. Mm. She feels bad about it. Um, And the effect that has on Kurt is incredibly hurtful. Kurt knows that Kitty isn't being mean, but despite him being warm and friendly, he can see her skin crawl whenever she looks at him. And that's heartbreaking. A, A constant reminder... That even here, in the mansion, on a team full of outcasts, his family, his safe space, he still looks like a monster to some of them. And he still causes revulsion, even amongst outcasts. It's, It's really done very well. But we also see, and this is what I think they've misinterpreted. So... Over a, a, a series of issues with this problem with Kitty and Nightcrawler... Clement uses it to examine Nightcrawler being really over the top with how with his with his we see this really over the top greeting in the cartoon and he's like that in the comics and it has complexity to it as, as Kitty is repulsed by his appearance Nightcrawler tries to make her like him more and more by complimenting her more and more by bringing her drinks and presents and trying to do things for her Mm. it's not flirting but it's this almost fawning attempt to prove he's a good guy yes yeah and it's based it is over the top and it is weird 
And as Kitty pulls back from him more and more, Kurt has to confront that he has this desperate need for approval for people because of the way he looks and the yeah. way they react. He has this in this over ingratiating manner that is sycophantic and off putting. So over this series of issues, they they use this to kind of pull out that that he has got this this trauma in him, which causes him to be oh mein Fräulein, oh let me introduce myself and I I'm a lovely person and I brought you some flowers and oh can I help you like because he's so scared and hates the way people react to him. It's wonderfully done in the yeah. comics. It's it's I I can see why they well even if they were reading from it correctly I don't think there's enough time to do that kind of not in issue thing. one not in episode one not in episode one no but this is meant to be the start of a series but yeah. they wouldn't do it but they wouldn't have done that anyway they're not the kind of show that would have done that yeah that's just fair enough but Kitty befriending Nightcrawler um, becomes wonderfully symbolic of her developing this maturity and a social consciousness yeah. there's an iconic scene in uh, like midway through the eighties where the X-Men go to a bar to relax and some bigots are abusing Nightcrawler. And it's Kitty who stands up for him. Um, And the bigot talks about Nightcrawler, says Nightcrawler isn't human. And Kitty, who is Jewish, says, when standing up, a whole bunch of her family were murdered in gas chambers by Nazis who were convinced they weren't human either. And that, and then not too long ago, there's people in America thinking the same thing about black people. It's a great scene, Good. Um, a really powerful scene about Kitty's maturity, um, and again that developing social conscience. Wow! And there's also um, a graphic novel, which is sometimes part of Marvel continuity and sometimes not. And they, they, who, who knows? Uh, it's called God Loves Man Kills. It's <laughs> wonderful. It's complex. It's complex. It's wonderful. Mm. And in that, a deranged preacher um, confronts the X-Men on live television. And as he's trying to turn the audience to his side, he points at Nightcrawler and says, you dare to call that thing human. And it builds to this moment where Kitty, the, the character who was repulsed by Nightcrawler's appearance to begin with, stands between Nightcrawler and this deranged preacher who's got a gun. And Kitty, whose power is self-defense to turn intangible, refuses to turn intangible, to literally put her body between Nightcrawler, who she was repulsed by, and this bigot and the bullet and everything. on. And it's all, it's just very, very well done. And that's all under the pen of of, of the wonderful Chris Claremont, um, and even after he after he leaves, obviously a lot of that emotional complexity goes. But subsequent writers have always kept alive the very special friendship that got forged between Nightcrawler and, and, and Kitty. That's lovely. That's lovely. Charles and Kitty watch a security feed of Magneto and Juggernaut tearing through the mansion's front gates while Charles explains to the new recruit about the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and their plans for domination. Juggernaut... Is, he is an ally of Magneto in the comics, right? No, he's oh, not thought... a mutant, remember? Ah, he's not yes. a mutant. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, they, they talk about it being stepbrothers in this, in this mm. uh, pilot. I mean, Kane Marco is the son of Kurt Marco, who becomes Charles Xavier's stepfather uh, when he marries Professor X's mom. Uh, guess what Professor X's mom is called? It's a good mom name. Is it Martha? Sharon. Very close. Sharon! Um, 
after <laughs> so um uh, there's a lot of they don't get on but uh eventually professor x and his stepbrother go to fighting korea um this probably isn't <laughs> the origin anymore they probably have up in the timeline but it was yeah. korea um and as they're stationed in korea they find the hidden temple dedicated to the cosmic being Sitarak. Um, and Marco finds founds a, a, a huge ruby which he tries to steal. And he grabs the ruby. And there's an inscription on the ruby, which is very Mjolnir. <laughs> it says, whosoever, if anything says whosoever, it's Mjolnir. Whosoever touches this gem shall be granted the power of the crimson gem of Sitarak. Henceforth, you who read these words shall become forevermore a human juggernaut. Mm. Um, and it channels the power of Sitarak into Marco and he becomes juggernaut. And yeah, so he's not a mutant. And so I, I think there might, there, I, I, I have a dim memory of a modern comic where he does join the Brotherhood, but I think he's actually acting as a spy for Xavier. In a turn, in a whole oh, twist kind of way. So he's not; he's never really been a member of the Brotherhood of Mutants. He's never really been a Magneto ally or lackey, and and like he's primarily an X Men villain. But unlike anyone else in that kind of realm, Juggernaut is is uh, a wider Marvel villain. He's fought Spider Man a bunch, the Avengers, the Hulk, and Doctor Strange, and stuff. And I think maybe because. Maybe because he's not a mutant, he's been able to kind of be used outside of the X Men a bit more uh, for the yeah, mutant villains. Because he's a bit, you know, he's a bit more in line with like the Absorbing Man or mm. those kind of bad guys. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me, you know, we had the discussion whether, like, oh yeah, Spider Man's not a mutant in the same way the X Men are the mutants. They he got his through not, you know, not the mutant gene through through for a spider bite or whatever. Yes, it does get a little. So the Spider Man was not born with something that would eventually make him superhuman. He was irradiated, like the Fantastic Four, exactly, uh, or indeed like Captain America. He had something uh, changed his physiology, and he developed powers. Absolutely, um, it does become a little bit complicated later on when we have we maybe talked about. Uh, in the Secret Invasion, I think, episode, we talked about the secret warriors that Nick Fury puts together, who are... Ooh, what was it again? Children of powered people, mm. and thus born with a, a ability to have a power, but somehow not mutants. <laughs> it, it, uh, oh dear. Because Marvel kind of do away with this idea of it's all to do with radiation... Mm. Um, and eventually they go with, oh, it's evolution. You have mm. to have the specific mutant gene which marks you as a different strain of species. So that's kind of what they do. Yeah, I yeah. get that. Wow. The next second, Kitty accidentally phases through a control panel and frazzles the mansion's defense circuit. Frazzles. I love a frazzle, mate. Ooh, frazzles are nice. Oh, they're lovely. The evil mutants crash through the front door with Charles entrusting Kitty, the mutant power circuit of Cerebro. The very thing Magneto is after. Would you have done that? No. No, I would not. Take this, 13-year-old. I would would put that child in a a cupboard. You know, in a a protective way, not in a... (laughs) Oh, that came off weird. (laughs) 
Bloody hell, I'm never going to live that over, am I? <laughs> Let's push on. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Juggernaut bashes through the wall to Cerebro, with Magneto entering and demanding the power circuit. Charles orders Kitty to use her power and the mutant phases through the wall and flees with the circuit. While Charles faces Juggernaut, his hulking stepbrother, Magneto catches up with Kitty and uses his magnetic powers to manipulate the wiring out of the wall and shock Kitty, sending the young mutant phasing through the floor and the circuit into Magneto's possession. I really liked that bit where he, Magneto is like a snake charmer. Yes. Yes, child, yes. yes. And the, the circuits come swimming out. I thought that yeah. was really, really like, oh, like villainous and sinister and classically over-the-top sinister. Oh, absolutely. But really different and interesting. Yeah, yeah, that worked. So we can we we know like she can walk through walls in this cartoon. Are those her only powers in the comics? Yes. Um... Yeah, she she can pass through solid matter. Mm. Um, it is said that it, it, so the particle okay, her atomic <laughs> particles pass through the space between atoms of the object that she's moving through. Yes. So in this way, she and the object temporarily merge mm. without interacting. Yes. And so she's unharmed. Um. There is a real-life person called Professor James Kakalios, a physics professor. He has too much time on his hands. Ooh. And he attempted to use quantum mechanics to explain Kitty's phasing powers. And he described it as an ability to control her own macroscopic quantum wave function, mm. increasing her tunneling probability to near 100%. So That, that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, does it? Well, there's some of the bigger words. I'm like, I haven't heard that one, but I can imagine what it is. Sure. Um, Shush. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the use of her ability does interfere and disrupt electrical systems that as she passes through them. Um, so she's able to kind of like do that to disrupt. Like she's like against a sentinel. Kitty's brilliant. Yeah. Just right through that brain, disrupt it, gone. She's a living um, EMP. Yeah, very localized. Very local, yeah, um, very localized, obviously. Um, and if she passes through um, living organic beings, it can cause um, shock and unconsciousness um, yeah. as she phases in it. She does not, whilst phasing, she is not physically on land or a surface. She's floating. Yes, she interacts with the molecules of the air. Um, and that allows Ooh, her to okay. ascend and descend, uh, basically however she wants. She walks on on air, basically. Amazing. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting one. She doesn't exactly, you know, she's not like a ghost that can fly or float, but she does kind of put the effort in to go up and down and things. That reminds um, me of the uh, thing we did with Spider Man, where it's like the simple, simple explanation is, uh, oh, yes. they walk through things, but it's like, oh yeah, how does Spider Man climb up walls? And, and it's with, like well, with gloves on. With, gl- with gloves on, it's like, yeah, because he's... <laughs> what was it? He's, he's got, like, a ma- magnetism or something in his body. It's it's it's, it's hi- highly electromagnetic, yeah. Have a hi- yeah, that's mad. So Kitty can also kind of extend her, her powers to phase other people through objects. Mm. Um, she's able to phase at least six people or uh, objects of similar mass as long as they remain in contact with her at all times. How do you remain contact with something when it is phased? That's the question that is never answered. Ooh. 
you're both out of phase, so maybe you're still the same mentally to each other. Who knows? Yeah, but um, you might you might have merged in a, in a very subtle way. She um, her powers have, have uh, as all characters do the mm. Wolverine principle. Powers and strength have greatly increased over the years <laughs> to suit the the demands of an audience hungrier for more exciting uh, adventures and thrilling deeds. Um, she was once able to phase out of sync with the rotation of the Earth. No! To move from one place in the world to another. No! Now, that is the power of another mutant called... Um, North Star? Yeah, North Star, I think. No, Guardian? Got one of them. One of the Alpha Flight dudes. The one who um, doesn't sound like a pub. North Star. Just sounds like a pub to me. Could be, could be. Um... And one time there was a planetary destroying weapon that was mm. going to be dropped on the planet to destroy it. It was simply a big bullet Oof. dropped from big enough heights that it would shatter the planet. Yeah. Fired from, it was a satellite that was essentially a gun. Um, <laughs> and What if and, we don't use missiles, right? What if we just drop a massive bullet on them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Kitty was the only person able to do anything about it, and she fa- it was a ma- it was ten miles long. Ooh, a ten mile long bullet. Ooh. Now she phased this, and it was a, a, a type of an alien metal that she wasn't very good at phasing. Mm. Um, and she phased it, and it caused her. And eventually, she phased. She kind of went unconscious as she's phasing with it. Kitty and the bullet passed right through the planet. And then just kept on going and couldn't unfaze. And she was lost to the X-Men for many years until they found a way of getting her back. I think it's appropriate, Will. Appropriate. It's time to feel appropriate. I think it's appropriate in this X-Men episode about stopping a comet (laughs) from hitting the Earth and destroying all life that we talk about the impending comet of doom that is hurtling towards this podcast. Right now, threatening to wipe out Will Preston and all the episodes that we make. And that terrifying comet listener is each and every one of you. Each and every one of you who don't subscribe and support us on Patreon. Um, That is the comet hurtling towards us. Will Preston is a simple man. He's Mm. a simple man living a simple life. Pumping days of hard work into this podcast. And your lack of support is going to crash down on his head like a comet being controlled by Magneto. (laughs) By not supporting us on Patreon, you are stealing our labour. We should go on strike like those fancy people in America will. Yes. The the MVM team... What? I was going to say we're going to have our little shirts on as well, like like the logo on. Good. The SAG logo. I don't (laughs) know. The MVM team is just us. The show is supported entirely by the amazing community on Patreon who do the right thing, that recognise the days of hard work that we pump into every episode, who stand up and say, I want this podcast to survive. 5.5 hours on Infinity War. Yes. We did that for you. We did that for you. We could have been like every other YouTube show out there, done 20 minutes of fluff, read something off Wikipedia, and said it was good and went home. We didn't. We gave you history. We gave you context. We gave you trivia. Five and a half hours of it to give you the full 
journey, the full insight. We don't have a team. We don't have adverts. We don't have any sponsors at the moment. We only can do this with your help and support. We can only keep doing it. So you can show your support over on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. And you can support us for as little as just £3 a month. That's all it would take to help us stay alive and keep going and, and get to the point where we can do end game in a year. That's barely the cost of a cup of coffee. And we have to share that coffee. <laughs> you could buy us one coffee a month. That's all it would take. And in exchange, we'll give you awesome bonus content like you wouldn't believe every single month. Bonus content like Obscure Marvel will... The latest Obscure Marvel oh, <laughs> featured... Yes. Featured um, Thor getting <laughs> a bonk on the head and going all craze cray. Now, not, not, not in a Taikai Watiti way. It's very similar. Um, yeah. <laughs> how did you feel about Thor and Loki versus the world? It was funny. It, it, it was it was very funny. The, 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 the way it gets resolved at the end was just ridiculous. It, <laughs> it, it's one of those things where I go, oh, I'd love to go back and read Marvel comics. And then, then this comes up and I go, ah, maybe, maybe I'll wait. <laughs> where should I start? Where should I start? After that, hopefully. Because while, while they're figuring out all the kinks with the stupid storylines. We release Obscure Marvel and have fun with that every single month. For everyone that donates and pledges to us at the £3 level and above, everybody gets Obscure Marvel. It's great fun every month. There are 39, on top of that, there are 39 deep dive bonus episodes available right now. These are similar to our main shows, but instead of looking at a Marvel movie or a TV show, we give a deep dive to a Marvel storyline an an epic a crossover event a big story like secret invasion like the civil war um or like we did this month the infinity gauntlet the original yes. comics that inspired the infinity war and endgame we gave that a two hour 18 minute deep dive that can go on top of the five and a half hour um magnum opus that was the infinity war that episode is full of Thanos versus the Marvel Universe, the, the character, how the character is different from the comics, how the story is so wildly different from the movies, sorry, not the comics, and it's packed with twists and turns. Um, Will, reflections on the Infinity Gauntlet. Oh, it's going to be amongst our best episodes easily, Just even just for the actual story we're handling alone. But man, it, it's mad. It gets so mad, so much. It's bigger than the movie could ever be. And you came out of it with a very different impression of Thanos. Yeah. <laughs> and we had that debate of which which one is better, which one's more interesting. And I find the comic one more uh, more interesting. Yeah, really. right. I can't and go into how- it, obviously, but yeah, it gets it gets very relatable and interesting. And we also looked at what the fight against Thanos is like in the comics compared to the movies and how different that is. It's bigger. And it is bigger, right? It's it bigger than, much bigger. Than- it's bigger than Infinity War and Endgame combined. It's mad. Huge. And that's waiting for you right now. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. And you'll get access at that £10 tier that we do, the VIEP tier. You'll get access to all 39 of our deep dive bonus episodes, um, which are all just 
Every one of them is a great little epic for you to pull off the shelf and uh, and spend several hours getting into. We don't skimp on Patreon. So there's 39 full-length deep dive bonus episodes, plus you can get early access to every main show we do three days early, plus you can get access to 34 mini-shows, including the fun, obscure Marvel we do every month. That's out there. That's waiting for you. we got some new members this month yes. doing the right thing. Shout out. It's a community support from Damian Lee, from Mark Marston, from K-Squad 80. They're out there right now with access to 39 huge deep dive binges for them to get through. Um, more and more people join you all the time. Get on board. Help support us. Help keep this show on the air. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Do the right thing. And back to the show. Meanwhile, the rest of the X-Men head to a deep space observatory. Sorry, deep space observatory where Pyro and Blob under Magneto's orders are stealing the tracking coordinates for the Scorpio comet approaching Earth in order to use it to wipe out humanity. Just before Pyro is able to take what he came for, the X-Men enter to stop the evil mutants. Colossus turns to metal and his attempt to lift up Blob attempts to lift up Blob, but no force can move him. Cyclops demands that Pyro release his hostages, but instead, Pyro launches a torrent of flame. Storm uses her wind powers to quell the Inferno, but as Nightcrawler approaches the now-safe hostages, one of them yells at Nightcrawler, calling him a filthy mutant. The next second, the police arrive outside, and the X-Men make a hasty exit. I I like it that we've had this straight-up mutant phobia from someone they've just saved to hammer home how, how they're treated awfully. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a really good moment that because like this isn't this is not a bad guy. This is just a guy they just saved, and it's just yeah. Just, I I agree. I completely agree. It's a nice little moment. Yeah. Um, and I, however, I have just think I've stumbled across the memory of what the other story for Australian Wolverine is. Oh, okay, let's hear it. Pyro in this is American, right? In the, okay, in the comics, Pyro is Australian. Yes. At some stage in the initial script, Wolverine calls Pyro a dingo because he's <laughs> meant to be Australian. There but then we he go. wasn't. And I remember there being some talk of that being the reason why the producers went, I guess that means Wolverine's Australian. That's um, yeah, But I, I don't know if that's that. right or not. I, I I think the Mad Max slash Crocodile Dundee explanation makes a lot of sense. It, Aust- Australian stuff was we still have um, uh, down under pubs in this country. Walkabout, walkabouts, walkabout. Yeah, down yeah, under's, yeah. Down unders are gone, haven't they? But yeah, well, we, walkabouts we, still knocking around as a as a very small chain. But they were huge in the in the nineties. The walkabout. Well, I remember them in the no- late noughties because I wasn't uh, you know doing that just yet. But obviously, in some parts of London, you've uh, got tons of uh, Australian bar staff. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flood the market like Main, locusts. Mainly Clapham, mainly Clapham. Uh, yeah, God. So, on Magneto's orbital base, Asteroid M, his lackey Toad helps install the mutant circuit into the, his machine that will redirect the Scorpio comet into Earth. Meanwhile, the X Men return to the mansion, finding it attacked. Is they there re- any explanation of why? They need a. Why does Cerebro complete a circuit that controls a comet? Because it's to do with psychic power or psychic energy or something. I don't know. Oh, is it? 
I guess. Okay. I guess, that's my guess. They don't explain it. They don't, they just, no. They just go, we need the MacGuffin. To complete the circuit. To complete yeah. the, we need the, the, the MacGuffin circuit. They retrieve Charles from rubble and find Kitty... Pro- I'm going to interrupt you again. What happens when they retrieve Charles from rubble? I spotted even as a kid. Does he, does he stand? No, but he moves his legs and sits up. No! They lay him flat. So there's a bunch of things that happened. That stood out. I, I wish to rewind this video a lot as a kid. First of all, Cyclops clears a table with his optic blast. It just like <laughs> like you could have just used his hand, but he moves some rubble away with a, an optic blast. Looks badass. And they lay Charles on the table, and then when he wakes up, he sits up, and his one leg with it goes up to an, a knee position. Like he he raises his knee and his leg and sits up. And as a kid, oh, I was no. furious. No, I didn't spot that because it's like. You see that as like as natural react, you know, natural movements, but you forget. He's, like, oh, wait a minute, he's a- yeah. he's on the fiddle. He's claiming <laughs> disability benefits. <laughs> Charles Xavier on the fiddle. He's been on the fiddle so much, he's opened up his own school on benefit money. <laughs> uh, they retrieve Charles from the rubble and find Kitty Pride hiding elsewhere. Kitty tells tearfully tells the team that Magneto has the circuit. As Magneto activates his machine, Charles uses his powers to locate Magneto. But the clock is now ticking as the Scorpio Comet heads directly towards Earth. If the comet hits Earth, it will kick up a cloud of dust and debris that will block out the sun for years, plunging the planet into an ice age. Uh, Toad can fly, can he? No, he's clearly leaping. He's clearly leaping, right. No, he jumps. He, can, he he, jumps. can he leap? Yeah, he leaps a lot in this. He jumps okay. all over the place and he off walls. Although and stuff. that was it, it was the tongue and the acid spit that he, that he doesn't have or whatever. Yeah, yeah. What he it. does here, however, is effortlessly leaps directly up like he's flying. Yeah, but I, then he has to hang on to something on the rafters. He has okay, to okay, that's that's, that's that's fair. It just looked too much like flying, and I was like, what? Yeah, they they didn't even even have a boingy sound effect, so there's nothing. Oh boy, to... they didn't know, like they the gummy didn't. bears. Gummy bears bouncing here and there and everywhere. Is that the same composer? <laughs> no, it's not. But it's one of the greatest songs ever. Yeah. We are the gummy. Like you wouldn't deride that for telling you who the gummy bears are. You'd go, oh, no, they're, they're, that works perfectly. No, no, but the gummy bears don't deal with like bigotry and. Uh, they do. Oh, they that do. Guy, so- that yes. guy hates Sorry. the gummy bears because yeah. they are bouncy and he wants them to stop and they're bouncing. And they're talking about caring and stuff, yeah. Mm. You know, as, as, as opposed to That's the care bears. Gummy bears, jeez. They merge into one for me. Sorry. Gummy bears are bouncy. Yeah. Care bears, <laughs> caring. They're, in fact, Will, they're bouncing here and there and everywhere. <laughs> Are you just quoting the bloody theme at me now? Because it's, it's, it's great. It's one of the best songs you'll ever hear. Okay, I'll, I'll check it out later. I Gummy bears, defenders of the earth. Check I'll them put, out. I'll put them on the list, Rob. I'll put them on the list. Hey, finish hey, it. Hey, there it is. <laughs> all the catchphrase. All the catchphrases. Also, uh, Toad and Lockheed, uh, voiced by Frank Welker, the most prolific voice actor in the business. What else does he do? How do we know him? Oh, he's like been. In, he does. Uh, Freddy and Scooby Doo. He d- oh, oh, oh sorry. wow, major royalty. Well, it's to list out everything he's done. It's just like yeah, you know, what hasn't just he the done? Hits, just the top he's, stuff, though. But we he, we we've dealt with him before in Marvel versus Marvel <gasps> when he played uh, the devil in Spawn. Who's the, who's the oh, really? The voice of the devil. Voice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's typical Frank Welk. He can just do any of those kind of cartoony voices. 
I don't think I've ever heard him do a normal voice. He just does cartoony voices and sounds of animals. Hey, good good work if you can get it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The guys, the guys, the sound of all our childhoods, man. So, Asteroid M, um, I've recognised that from a video game. Uh, is that from the comics, or did it get created another way? No, it is. Uh, yeah, like the like issue five of the X Men, 1964. Oh, so as early as that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's the I, it's a very early adventure with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and he's built. He he just has it. He just has this giant. Space station that's made out of a, a rock and like an asteroid. I got it in the um, inheritance. <laughs> it has um, several levels. There's an observation deck. There's hangar bays. There's technology and stuff to keep it hidden and things. Um, and in its first appearance, or well, it might be the next issue, but in its first sort of appearance, it is immediately destroyed in battle with the X Men. Oh, um, that's annoying. Yeah. Imagine putting together that and in the first gone. Not, oh God. But then when Magneto joins the Hellfire Club, and he's a good guy, he builds a fancier version of Asteroid M. Um, and uh, this one is a fully-fledged space station. Is it actually um, an asteroid, though? Yes, it is still made oh, out still of an asteroid. Rock I, well, yeah, and, when you said fully-fledged space yeah. station, it's like, the, the asteroid name is ironic. <laughs> no, no, I say, I say space station because this one has, like, a swimming pool. Oh, um, that's that's what qualifies a space station. Isn't I it? think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And it has like medical facilities and science facilities and things, and it also has uh, like prisons with uh, inhibitor fields, so you can turn off superpowers and things. Um, he went there after some trauma to live in peace, but then there's a, a without his knowledge or consent. A group rose up on Earth called the Acolytes, and they are Magneto's Acolytes. And they preach that they follow Magneto, they're mutants that follow Magneto, and they were being uh, chased by soldiers because they did a murder, and they end up living on on Asteroid M with him, and then it blows up again. Um, The first Asteroid M that blew up in the 60s crash lands off the coast of San Francisco, Ah oh, yes, I remember you talking about yeah. this. Yeah, and then when Cyclops takes the X Men to the West Coast, he has his uh, people raise Asteroid M out of the water on onto the surface, and it becomes a new landmass, mm. um, and that becomes the new mutant homeland, Utopia. How big is it again? Oh, pretty big. Pretty big, like like enough to have. Well, obviously, it has a swimming pool. Or is that the original asteroid? You don't need then? a swimming pool. The original doesn't have a swimming pool. And you don't need a swimming pool when you're, like, in the ocean. you got the ocean. Hey, sometimes I like to go for a swim without being salty afterwards. <laughs> just, just... Okay. Okay, okay. 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 As the X-Men head off to stop Magneto, Kitty protests at being left behind. But Charles reminds her that she hasn't started her training yet. However, Kitty is determined to prove her worth. Approaching Asteroid M... The X-Men don spacesuits and head off to infiltrate Magneto's base. As they leave, Charles finds Kitty hiding in a locker, already wearing a spacesuit. While Kitty wants to make up for allowing Magneto to have possession of the circuit, Charles tells her that what she plans to do will be very dangerous, but lets her head off with the rest of the team. So first episode, we've got Asteroid M and space travel. They really threw a lot into this pilot. You can't really do Asteroid M without space travel, Will. That's what no, I'm no, saying. No, that'd be annoying, wouldn't it? Like, they're Asteroid M now. Well, 
We can't get him. So we haven't get, got the budget. We, get, we haven't got the. We're gonna have to fight. We have to punch someone else. He kind of looks like Magneto. Let's punch him. <laughs> so, what's Kitty's first mission with the X Men like? Is it as epic as this, or is it something a bit more like a training? You know, like- uh, well, she does a lot of training. I, I mean, on a technicality, you could say it's Days of Future Past. Ah, oh. Although oh, oh, okay. she's asleep for the whole thing because she, and it doesn't really count. She gets mind controlled or possessed by her older self yes from the future who controls her does the whole thing and then and then kitty wakes up at the end so i don't know if that one counts um mm. there is there is however um a time when she was in training getting along and everything and she stows away on a mission like this and confronts magneto like this so i think that one's an appropriate one um, she actually on this time when she stows away and not ready for a for 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 a full mission, but uh, yeah, stows away. She is nearly killed by Magneto. In Ooh. fact, Magneto thinks that he has killed her, and seeing for the first time like what she looks like properly and not just in a battle, he thinks he's killed a child, and oh. he is overcome with guilt and shame and sadness. And this is not something you would come to have expected by Magneto at this point in 1981. It's this event that is the first time ever a story connects Magneto to the Holocaust. Ah, As he is grieving over Kitty, he recalls Auschwitz and seeing the Nazis herd children into gas chambers Mm. and seeing them kill his own family. And he's just overwrought with guilt. And this is a real first glimpse of humanity from one of the earliest cackling Marvel villains. Storm arrives on the scene. She sees Kitty isn't moving and, uh, uh, you know, overcome with rage, she threatens to kill Magneto. And he says, I won't stop you. I deserve it. Oh. And, and, in his, in, and he says in his zeal to remake the world... He has become a monster just like the Nazis. Um, and writer Chris Claremont forever changed Magneto. For any time you hear Stan Lee or any of these people that, that are fair weather f- fans talk about how Magneto was always meant to be the good guy <laughs> and a complex character. No, he wasn't. Chris Claremont does it in the 80s. 1981 with this. This is the beginning of it. He He, he forever changes Magneto with this emotional and powerful backstory that adds layers of complexity to the character and he and he starts to flesh that out as we go and this is the beginning of magneto going down a a path of redemption Hmm. in the stories where his character arc eventually takes him from classic villain to as we said headmaster of children and leader of the x-men wow the x-men breached the outer wall of asteroid m alerting magneto who sends Pyro, Toad, and Juggernaut, and White Queen after them. Running down a corridor, Pyro stops the team with a wall of fire, but Dazzler keeps Pyro busy with light attacks, allowing the team to take another path. Suddenly, they are pounced on by Toad, but Wolverine slashes the wall with his claws and causes a cave-in that traps the evil mutant. Heading into the next room, they face up against Juggernaut, with Colossus facing him alone. The rest of the team are almost apprehended by White Queen, but Cyclops dazzles her with an optic blast as Nightcrawler comes face to face with Blob rather than fight, rather than fight the huge mon- uh, mutant. He teleports away and arrives outside Magneto's control room. 
So what happened the first time uh, the X-Men fought the Brotherhood? Was it on Asteroid M? Was it a big team-up like this? What happened? Uh, not on Asteroid M. No, I'm going to say not a lot, really. Um, no. So uh, whilst later incarnations of the, the Brotherhood of Mutants uh, become sophisticated and they're all about uh, political ideology to rival Charles Xavier and we're not going to treat humans well. Originally, it was just Magneto is a supervillain and he has henchmen. He has mm. villains working with him. They are called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They're not like a political group or anything. And and it's all about Magneto's schemes for world domination. He has Toad, the sniveling villain mm. with incredible jumping ability, which is apparently helpful. Um, <laughs> if what if, what if we have a really high shelf and I've accidentally <laughs> put the oregano up there? What then? It's, it does feel like maybe Xavier scooped up all the good mutants and there was just not a lot left at the well, bottom of the barrel. Oh, we still got one player left for our football team. Guess we'll have to take Toad. Uh, he, he also has Mastermind, who is powerful. Hmm. He has the ability to create illusions that you can't... like Not just... An illusion of... What is it? Um, so it's not just sight. It's also touch and taste and sound. It's a fully immersive illusion it's almost like reality bending but not hollow like... hollow deck holly ah there we go hard light hard light. and new recruits quicksilver and the scarlet witch mm. um they're part of the original brotherhood so quicksilver and the scarlet witch were written as sympathetic characters not villains and they're painted not as evil but as trapped by bad circumstance we right. see uh, in the first appearance of the brotherhood that Wanda uh, was being like chased down by a, a group of like you know pitchfork waving flaming torch carrying villagers who believe she's a witch. Magneto saves her, and to repay the debt that she owes this man, mm. she has to join his his brotherhood and and um, and help him the way he helped her. And in order to protect his sister, Pietro joins as well. Um. So, in their first appearance, they invade a country, uh, a, a small nation, South American nation called Santa Marco. Um, mm. And here's how they invade it. Santa Marco doesn't really have much in the way of a military force. Mastermind creates an illusion of a big army, and Santa Marco surrenders <laughs> immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, oh, fair enough. Um and it marches through, the, 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 and all the, the, the people, the population are like, we give up. And so Magneto has that country. And then the X-Men go to fight them. Um, and there's not a whole... I remember in the early 60s, we're still dealing with this period of time where fighting, violence, is really not... doesn't happen much in, in the comics because of the moral panic of the 50s, the seduction of the innocent comic book, uh, sorry, book, and all that kind of stuff, and all the regulations that are coming past. So there's not a huge amount of fighting, fighting. So the X-Men go to stop Magneto. Um, and they kind of get held off by an illusion of a fire. Uh, and then the, the Brotherhood are like, oh, we're going to run away, and we're going to booby-trap the door, and a bomb goes off. Professor X is caught in the blast, and the X-Men go, we need to take him home. And that's kind of it. That's kind of how it's a it's a, a bit of a not a th overly thrilling encounter. Mm. Um, the very next issue is when they chase them all the way up to 
Asteroid M for the first time and have a have a fight up there. But a, a the proper, first proper rumble, not really. No, oh. they don't. They, there's no proper rumble for ages. When's, when's the first proper rumble? Oh, I have no idea. In the history of Marvel, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, you'd, I'd have to do a lot of kind of reading, and and it would probably be in gradual stages. There'd be a little bit more violence here, a little mm. bit more violence there. Yeah, it's hard to hard to tell, really. That's fair. Magneto watches as the comet approaches Earth with three minutes left until it destroys the planet. Magneto brags about his plan and is about to kill Nightcrawler with a lethal blast, but Kitty phases up out of the floor like a ghost and grabs Magneto's hand. And Kitty is not alone. Lockheed bites Magneto's ankle, causing him to release his magnetic energy and break the circuit of the machine controlling the comet. With the circuit broken, there is nothing to control the comet anymore. Kitty tackles Magneto, slamming him into the broken machine so his own powers act as the battery. Nightcrawler holds the broken wires together using his own body to complete the circuit. Nightcrawler uses the machine to change the course of the comet towards Asteroid M, but Magneto points out to Kitty that if Nightcrawler releases himself from the machine, the comet's course changes back towards Earth. To save humanity, Nightcrawler must die. Great line delivery there. That's... That is like on the front cover of an old comic. Yeah. That it would be, to save humanity, Nightcrawler must die. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a good little, uh, good good little, little bit of clickbait. Business. Yeah. <laughs> Nightcrawler orders Kitty to get everyone off the asteroid at once. While Kitty protests Nightcrawler's sacrifice, Charles telepathically communicates with the team and tells them he has a plan. So I know uh, Magneto has done some really bad things over the years, but has he ever tried to destroy the entire planet? He has threatened to. Hmm. I can't. I can think. Right. So I can think of two times when he's threatened to. What he's threatened to do is reverse the polarity of Earth's magnetic poles. Right. Which would destroy the world. Yeah. Essentially. One time he did that. It feels much more like a threat leveled at the UN, like nuclear stalemate, like like Putin saying we might use nukes if you get it, involved. It basically ensures you leave me alone. Yeah, he 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 blasted uh, America with an EMP to show he was not toothless, and that was uh, like wiped out kind of you know all all electrical things. Um, and then another time, he did a bunch of drugs and went mad. Um, <laughs> Bloody hell. There was this drug called Kick, which makes your mutant powers more powery, but also you, you get high off it and it, you get addicted to it. I believe the word is powerful. That makes it no, more powerful. No, no, no. Well, powery. no more powery, yeah. What's so he does a whole bunch of Kick. Oh, um, right, okay. He does a whole bunch of Kick. He gets more, his powers become more powery, and he goes mad. And he seizes control of New York, and he starts murdering humans indiscriminately. He's always been a hero, really. A complex and moral grey character. And he tells all his mutant followers, Ah, I'm going to reverse the... Hey, guys, we're going to reverse the polarity of the poles, and I'm going to kill everyone. And it was basically this thing of, I'm going to create a Mad Max wasteland, and we'll rise up and rule it. Which yes. sounds like a gamble to me, but... Um, I mean, he well, never, that's not he really nice to rule, is it? You know, you, you, it's a wasteland. Uh, that was a that is Planet X, which is the virtually the culmination of Grant Morrison's wonderful run writing the new X Men. It was gorgeous. Unfortunately, the powers that be at Marvel went. We don't like the idea 
of Magneto, who was probably a profitable movie character, killing a whole bunch of people in New York and being a terrorist. So they retconned it and made it something different. Stupid, stupid. But it happened. I read it. I was there. Um, Over in the Marvel Universe, the ultimate version of Magneto, who was a very intense terrorist to begin with, Mm. became even more extreme when his children died. And he did what regular world Magneto has threatened to do. He did indeed reverse the polarity of the poles. And it does untold damage to the Earth. Huge tsunamis, tidal waves, um, terrible lightning storms, colder regions become frozen, millions and millions die. It kills The event kills Thor, Captain America, Daredevil, Angel, Beast, Nightcrawler. Um, Magneto personally kills Wolverine. Um, wow. it's, called, it's called... Basically what happened is Marvel decided they were going to do away with the Ultimate Marvel Universe. So they created an event called Ultimatum and went, someone could destroy everything and maybe that'd be good. We've had um, a fun time doing this Ultimate Universe stuff, but I think the train's run its course or whatever. It's yeah. widely regarded. Ultimatum is mm. widely regarded as one of the worst comics ever. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. It's really wow. bad. It's written by Jeff Loeb, who we both know has ah, written great comics. Wow. But also, wow. I think I've said this before, Jeff Loeb is unique. He's written some of my favorite comics ever and some of the worst I've ever read. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and it, it's fully it's fully Magneto's intention to exterminate all the humans. So oh, well, I'll, 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 I guess I'll avoid reading that then. Oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to worry. I've released you from your burden. That sounds like some kind of horrible gaslighting phrase, like like the Nazis used to say. Work will set you free. As we as we as we came to see, it was what my Mephisto was saying to Thanos in the Infinity War. Oh, I will release you of this burden. Don't worry. Mm, very good. Charles Xavier tells Nightcrawler that he's repositioning the Blackbird right outside the control room, and Nightcrawler will need to teleport into the craft just before the asteroid hits. However, Nightcrawler isn't quick enough and the impact of the comet and asteroid M destruction sends the mutant hurtling towards Earth where he'll burn up in the atmosphere. The X-Men chase after Nightcrawler and try to use the Blackbird's grappling laser to save him, but it's too late. Nightcrawler's spacesuit fizzles away in a burning light before their eyes. As the team mourns the loss of their friend, their emotional moment is cut short when Nightcrawler falls out of a nearby locker after teleporting out of his spacesuit. Nightcrawler says he owes Kitty pride for saving him. As the team welcomes aboard their newest member, Wolverine is still against someone that young being on the team. How did Kitty pride save him? I think he said, well, saved, uh, oh... I think it was earlier oh, when he was yeah, fighting Magneto. Right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was earlier when fighting Magneto, wasn't it? Yeah. So he teleported out of his spacesuit, uh, so that could be a bit of a pain uh, or if he, if he had, didn't have control of that and he had to do a space mission. Uh, mm. How did Nightcrawler's teleportation work in the comics? Can he just do that? Like, you know, obviously in, in space, would that work? In motion, I don't know. I don't know if in motion... Yeah, he's mm. done it. Yeah, probably so. So the powers work by he... Uh, he displaces himself to an alternate dimension. <laughs> oh, yes. Travels through that alternate dimension and then comes out in this world wherever he wants to go. And space and time act differently in this other dimension. Mm. Um, so as he teleports, 
he leaves behind like smoke. The smoke is and and the the scent of burning brimstone because yes, this is the yes. atmosphere of the other dimension, which ties into this whole things of well, he's pretty much a demon then, right? Because he's going to hell, surely. Brimstone <laughs> smoke. Um, no, he's doing the event horizon thing. He's actually going to a dimension of utter chaos. <laughs> And there's a, a sound. It, the sound in the in this series doesn't doesn't work for me. the The sound effect in the comics is B A M F, bump, bump, um, and that that noise is like the 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 sound of air rushing in to fill the space. Uh, that uh, he's like left or a yeah, like that. It's yeah. pretty cool. Um, so he been shown to to and originally there was quite a lot of limits on his powers. He could he could teleport around two miles. And I'm sure there was this thing of it had to be line of sight teleportation. That's it. Or he had to remember it. Yeah. But I think that was perhaps that was explained away as just easier for him. Um he's he's subsequent years he's died and come back from the dead. And hey, what's the Wolverine principle will? Everyone gets more powerful. Um <laughs> so there's all sorts of, of things he can do now. So it, it it's like it, it's weirdly it's uh, it, teleporting along magnetic lines of force is easier for him. So oh. north, I don't know, I don't, I don't know why this ever came up, but north to south is easier than east to west. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's been able to take passengers with him as he teleports, but that is draining to the other person. Hmm. So one tactic he has in battle is to grab someone and teleport 60 times over small distances, <laughs> let them go, and they pass out from the strain. Amazing. Um, yeah, he was once able to um, teleport from... Like, before he died, I think his last... One time when he died, his last act of bravery was to teleport from Las Vegas to San Francisco. Ooh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Yeah, yeah, long, um, long, long I think way. that that contributed to him dying. Then when he came back from the from the dead, he was more powerful because of the Wolverine principle, um, and he was able to teleport thousands of miles. He once teleported from the uh, United Arab Emirates to Antarctica. Um, so there we go. And it's described as he has um, an unconscious extrasensory spatial awareness ability which prevents him from accidentally teleporting into a solid object. Hmm. So he'll never teleport and materialize in a wall. He'll yeah, materialize. Yeah, yeah. And if he if like if he was I'm going to teleport down and see what's there. <laughs> he won't teleport in and, re- and materialize in solid earth and die. He'll just materialize back where he came from. So it's like, just like if a, he can't a, go there, he won't go there. He's he's been rejected. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's the teleportation powers of Nightcrawler. There we have it, folks. We have put to bed the very first time the X-Men got their own cartoon series, the failed pilot pride of the X-Men. We've pulled it apart and given it to you good and proper. Will, um, your <laughs> your final thoughts on uh, on that pilot, Pride of the X-Men? Well, as we said, very uh, 80s feeling. The music, the voiceovers, the hair, all of it very 80s. But while the animation is better than early episodes of the X-Men animated series, the script and voiceovers are just a bit too cartoony. It made me appreciate the good voice acting work that made it to the animated series later. 
You can really tell they wanted an impressive pilot. We got to see so many mutants, as well as ha having them actually attack and destroy Asteroid M in the space of 20 minutes. Wolverine's Australian accent eventually grew on me, but Stan Lee's narration didn't. Yeah. Not, a bad, not a bad first rough attempt at an X-Men cartoon, to be fair. And uh, what what your what have you learned? What's your favourite yeah. um, Marvel trivia, X Men trivia you've learned from our podcast today? Well, I love you know me. I love science. I love the scientific uh, analysis of what happens to Kitty Pride in terms of atomic structure. Mm. I loved that. I, I I loved hearing about how the uh, Ultimate Marvel Universe ended with Ultimatum. Didn't know that was that. That's mental. I know it's. I know you say it's bad, but like I will, if I could, I would read that. Because you I can't. want to, I, I want to see that. I want to see. You what you're not I'm not allowed. You're not. You're rubbish. You can't ever read a Marvel comic. Damn it! But uh, <laughs> the, the one that I really loved was kidnapping Kitty Pride and then wiping her parents' <laughs> minds because that was easier than explaining what happened. <laughs> yeah, mind wipes. Um, reading this <laughs> for this episode, I mean. Check out like check out any of the of the uh, Chris Clement kind of well maybe not any the Chris Clement kind of X Men stuff from the eighties anything with John Byrne is good the Dark Phoenix Saga by Chris Clement and John Byrne um, that's got the first Kitty Pride uh, appearances in that's really good and it's also the Dark Phoenix Saga it's the best you know one of the best X Men stories I'd also it, it's it's heavy going and there is um, a racial slur printed in it um, Ooh, dear. but. God Loves Man Kills by Chris Kleiman and Brent Anderson. It's heavy going. It is about bigotry and things like that, but it's really good. Uh, it's important stuff, so that's a cool one to check out. Our next episode, Will. We've talked a lot about the Ultimate Marvel Universe. We're going to give a deep dive to it for the first time. The animated movie, Ultimate Avengers the Movie. It was a direct-to-DVD movie that came out in 2006. It's based on the controversial and dark reimagining of the Avengers, which are called The Ultimates. We're going to deep-dive the movie and explore the insanely popular and successful Ultimate Marvel Universe. That is next time on Marvel vs. Marvel. Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written, and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston. The show is produced by Will Preston. And our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh. Head to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel for awesome bonus content. Marvel versus Marvel.